Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Svedan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. Today's episode features Travis Higginbotham. Travis joined Harborside Incorporated in 2021 as Vice President of Production, where he spearheads production and product distribution to expand access to Harborside products and better serve customers as demand for high-quality cannabis continues to rise. Thank you for listening. I'm Nadia Saba, president of Dr. Greenhouse and host of The Doctor Is In. Welcome to our special series, uh, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Travis Higginbotham, vice president of Harborside, a cannabis cultivation company here in California. Hi, Travis. It's so great to have you on What Plants Crave. I'm super excited to talk to you and learn more about you, about the plants that you grow, uh, and the quirks of growing those plants in greenhouses and indoors. Thank you, Nadia. Happy to be here and excited also. So yeah, let's jump into it. So first, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and the long path that you've taken to the position that you have today at Harborside. Oh, gosh. It's been a wild ride, to say the least. Uh, wild but fun. You know, my background is in ornamental crop production, as, as you know, and I'm, um, I have a master's in horticulture. And so kind of started out on the commercial greenhouse ornamental track. And I've worked with some of the larger growers here in the country and done a lot of work with like Lowe's and product development, working on new, new genetics with multiple different floricultural crop species. But yeah, after, after that, worked a lot with lighting in uh, controlled environments, greenhouse, as well as um, doing some fun- funky things outdoors with lighting. Worked with Fluence, um, who currently supplies to, to all horticultural markets, but originally had a, had a focus on cannabis to start. But then after that, did a good bit of work on uh, hemp uh, before coming to, to be vice president here at Harborside. Awesome. Uh, I love that you have experience with floriculture and ornamentals. I don't think a lot of people realize how many of our flowers uh, that you buy down at Trader Joe's or at Home Depot or wherever uh, have been grown using controlled environment agriculture. What got you interested in horticulture and controlled environment ag in the first place? You know, my father and my family are military, and so the extent of their understanding of horticulture was mowing the grass um, when I was growing up, and so they they didn't quite know the, the the potential of the market or know really much about how to get involved, and so I kind of stumbled across it, to be honest. I, I had to make my own money growing up, um, like many of us, and I did that through landscaping and kind of just fell in love with landscaping kind of grew, had a small business that we grew and we did contracts for like chilies and, and cemeteries and worked with different municipalities and ended up working with a lot of different nurseries and then started to fall in love with different annuals and perennials and shrubs and trees and the intricacies around those. And But then from there, uh, ended up going to Clemson and worked with a um, specialist in the industry named Dr. Jim Faust there at Clemson University. And he really kind of opened my eyes to what the greenhouse industry is outside of my understanding of horticulture, just from kind of a landscape and, you know, outdoor perspective. And so I was able to work with him um, and and do research 
research there at Clemson and uh, get my foot in the door at a company called Battlefield Farms after college. And that, that really just really opened my eyes to what, what horticulture is globally and the complexities of horticulture um, when it's done indoors in a greenhouse, um, as well as you know, what can be done on a completely climate controlled facility. And the, the interesting thing was at Battlefield, they grew over, I think it was 300 different species. And annually they grew about 2,600 different varieties within those species. And each of these different varieties um, and obviously different species were grown very, very differently. And so it was just this magical learning experience, realizing the effort and uh, resources that go into buying a $12 gallon echinacea at Lowe's, you know, and so I, I just fell in love with it. That's amazing. What do you, what do you love about plants in general? You know, I love that we're dealing with a living organism, and I don't think that many, even who are in horticultural industries, sit back and think about it that way sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's, not, it's not something that, uh, you know, it's a very different organism from, you know, what I think people are used to interacting with. But at the same time, I love plants because you can, if you need to, you can press, you can press restart or redo. <laughs> And, and trash plants and start over. Well, again, yeah. <laughs> talking about lawns. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, I, I also love, you know, we, we know so much about plants already, but I think there's still so much that we don't know. And that's what, that's what keeps me motivated in, in what I do because there's, we learn every day. I mean, you truly do. And you can achieve the same thing through multiple different ways. And so it's just, it's just constantly fascinating. And the more technology and the more precision and these new markets are just causing us to, to learn at an accelerated rate. So, so I mean, you, you've had experience with all these different crops and you, you've sort of gravitated towards cannabis through your most recent roles. Why is that? Yeah, I, I originally wasn't very interested in cannabis. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I um, wasn't a part of my life as a you know, young adult. And obviously I experienced it in college, I think like most of us do. Um, but I, I'm one that likes to be sober. Um, <laughs> my brain just works, works better that way, you know. And so I, I didn't have like a, from a personal use perspective, I didn't have that big of an interest in the, in the plant. But then, you know, when I started to see how, how similar it was to some floricultural crops, that kind of piqued my interest. And then when I started to realize the intricacies of what we're defining as quality attributes, you know, cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, you know, secondary metabolites in general, and how these are produced or how we currently think they might be produced, that also was of interest to me. And with my other crops that I had worked with, I didn't work on crops that were grown for yield, right? We had, with floricultural crops, you grew for flowers, you grew for flower production, you grew for weight. And so that was something new for me, but yet grown in a very similar way to some of those floricultural crops. And so, so you're that more just, growing with ornamentals, you're more growing for quantity and quality than a specific weight yield. Yes, weight was never a part of the equation. That's, I never thought about that with ornamentals, with the, you know, the bunch of roses you get. I don't care about, you know, how much they weigh. I care about how they look and how long they are and how many I buy. Exactly. And you think about petunias, begonias, you know, dahlias, nothing to do with weight, but yet we still deal with 
the photoperiodic response of these plants. We still deal with trying to have, you know, the best quality flower and to initiate in a certain time period and cycle. And, and so, yeah, I don't know. There was just a few things about cannabis that were vastly different, but also the same. And I was like, hmm, I could do this. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot about cannabis and, you know, I mean, we are harvesting the flower for all intents and purposes. Obviously there's other parts that we might harvest yeah. and, and use and process, but it is a flower and we call it a flower. And sometimes when I, I think about the regulations on odors that uh, pervades <laughs> the cannabis industry, you know, I think about other floriculture crops and, and even strawberries and peaches and, and other fruits and vegetables that give off odors. And for some reason, we don't mind those odors. I mean, even Gilroy, right? I mean, you are so close to yeah. Gilroy <laughs> where you are in Salinas there. And I mean, where's the odor control on garlic? I mean, and that's kind of the, the fun of driving through Gilroy through like that part of California is that you know what they're growing. And by the way, it's just temporary, right? And it's seasonal or whatever. Um, and it almost like, you know where you are right? It grounds you in a way. And they're not spraying perfume into the air, running all these carbon filters um, to take out that stink. You just, you live with it, right? Like, you know that that's what they're growing and that's, that's fine. Anyway. Uh, no, yeah. no, I, I'm, right, I'm right there with you. And I've, you know, now that I'm here living in California, which is the first time I've lived here in California, I have experienced that, especially in Gilroy. And uh, yeah, to think about how how that's just commonplace for most other crops and it's not for cannabis. You know, there's so many things that have, I don't know, um, I don't want to say res restricted cannabis, but a lot of the regulations around cannabis still to, the, still to today just really do not make any sense. It, it really just doesn't. And, you know, we, we here at Harborside and Salinas, we work with Monterey County and, uh, and they're a tough county, like it, uh, mainly from an environmental perspective, I think, compared to any other county in California. Hmm. Um, but but most, of, most of the regulations that we have to abide by are clearly validated, which is, which is nice. But I do think, you know, something, is, is something like odor control, like, come on, you know, right. unless, it's, unless people are worried about theft and where it's located and, you know, things like that. But yeah, just one of the fun intricacies of cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> So why grow cannabis in a greenhouse or, or indoors for that matter, as opposed to outdoors? What are the benefits and, and how does it compare, you know, across maybe those three different types of um, growing methodologies? Mm, that's a good one. You know, out, outdoors is just kind of a, a whole different world and how you approach scheduling a crop versus in a greenhouse, right? So with cannabis, um, as many who are listening probably already know, it's, it's a short day plant, which means it flowers when given a short day preceded by a long day. And so outdoors, you're subject to your, you know, ambient day lengths or ambient light levels and your natural day length. And so you have to be very methodical at how you schedule your crop so that you maximize production in the one possible turn that you'll have that season. Whereas in a greenhouse, you have, you know, more precision while having the option to take advantage of the ambient environment around you, you know, to benefit your production while you still have control over those things of which you don't in an outdoor environment. I think also if you compare greenhouse to indoor, greenhouse also offers, you know, lower cost 
per square foot on a scale compared to indoor production, um, as well as I think there's a discussion to be had around carbon footprint of a greenhouse versus indoor production, which I would certainly lean on you for. But yeah, I think, you know, I, my, I, my preference is greenhouse that obviously favors my expertise and background. And so, you know, I appreciate having the ability to to use what what Mother Nature has has given us freely, as well as what I do think plants in some cases are you know, evolutionarily inclined to to utilize in the first place, but then have the option also to to fine tune the plant throughout production and push it in certain ways that you you would not be able to do outdoors. Mm-hmm. I mean that what you just said right there about what plants are sort of inclined to, you know, naturally growing outdoors. What do you say to people who are like, well, you know, indoors, we can more precisely control those environmental variables. We're in a greenhouse. We're still susceptible to the outside ambient environment, whether that's light or temperature. What do you say to those naysayers who say, no, we have to grow indoors for for quality or for yield or just controllability? Yeah, I understand where that mindset is coming from. You know, one of the benefits of completely climate controlled, if you actually have it, is consistency. And, and, uh, and the impact of consistency on growth, on yield, on quality. In a greenhouse, yes, especially if you're, you know, there's multiple different types of greenhouses, especially if you're a company that's retrofitted, right? And there's, it's, let's say, an older facility with lower health lower ceilings versus let's say a nice glass bin low that's hybrid and, and, you know, contained and much more controllable. I do think though, you know, with the right grower and the right understanding of your infrastructure and putting, putting a priority on, on the intricacies of growing and understanding the impact of the growing environment on the plant, you can have very similar control in a greenhouse. But it, it just comes, in my opinion, with a certain level of expertise also on just understanding plants. Right. Um, and, and understanding how all those different variables interact with each other. So, yeah. you know, if, 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 it's, if it's a hotter day that you can't control uh, the temperature, the VPD in your greenhouse as well as you'd like to, you make adjustments to irrigation and nutrients or you shade or something, right, to, to block some of the light because your plant, you know, uh, will have heat stress. I mean, there's other th- there's other knobs to turn, right, if, if you don't have the perfect conditions that you're always looking for. Yeah, agreed. But then at the same time, you know, in a greenhouse, you could counter for the, you know, um, indoor that there's certain times of the year where, you know, I can pretty much barely use any energy, just open up the roof. And, you know, with some of the highest light levels here in Salinas, be able to let these plants grow as they should without having to really supplement anything. Right. And so I think there's, there's a, there's pros and cons to, you know, having precision over crop production, but then also, you know, doing everything we can from a cost and efficiency and environmental impact standpoint. And there's, there's certainly trade-offs between both of these systems. Something that I always think about too with with greenhouses is, yeah, you might have more variability than than indoors, but is that necessarily a bad thing? Yeah. Well, and it's like, to what extent is the variability an issue or a you know a cause for concern, right? Can anybody answer that? I don't think so on cannabis. Like, there's obvious, you know, there's obvious concerns of like you know temperature dropping too fast and you possibly hitting dew point during flowering and causing mold or you know, there's certain things that are obvious, but yeah, is what level of variation it will 
will negatively impact production. Um, and I, again, I think that kind of comes back to the grower and then understanding that system. So no good and point. Does the, does, does the adage apply? What doesn't kill you make you makes you stronger? Does that apply to plants? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, comes up on the discussion of what, how, how do we define stress and its impact on crop production? And I think certain growers have seen this, you know, they understand the benefit of acclimating, they understand or are starting to understand, you know, practices from other markets when we say hardening off or bulking and, and what these actually mean. And it's, you know, making the plant stronger, um, being able to put it in a more harsh environment where you could push more growth. So yeah, I guess to your question, it would be, yeah, it makes you better. <laughs> <laughs> what is hardening? So I'd say, you know, if we had, we think about the different stages of crop production within cannabis specifically. We have you know, mother stock production, propagation, the vegetative stage and flowering. And if we have a very ideal environment for rooting, um, it's you know a, a stage in production where we have very, very tender plants, I guess you could say. Um, and we have lower light levels, higher humidity, warmer temperatures, just allowing the plant to, to kind of relax and focus on rooting. Um, but then once that plant is rooted, we want to, you know, introduce it into a different environment or ready to start pushing growth. And so when we move it out of um, the propagation environment, possibly to the vegetative stage where now it's supposed to be transplanted, uh, I have seen some growers in other markets as well as in cannabis, you know, have what you call a hardening off stage where this plant comes out and you allow it, you know, for a few days to acclimate um, in a part of the greenhouse that maybe is shaded. You don't have as much light as you would once you transplant it. The lights aren't on, the supplemental lights aren't on, but your humidity is lower and your temperature is lower. And so you kind of phase it and acclimate it to be ready for that next stage. And in some cases, I think some could define that as hardening off. It's interesting because I've heard some growers now, at least going from veg to flower, maybe not from propagation to, to veg, who have done this sort of acclimation period for a few days and um, maybe they start at five days and then they're like, wow, this is really delaying our flower period by, you know, a week or, or several days. So, so now they've maybe reduced it to, to one day, or I've even seen some growers just say, screw acclimation, I'm just going to shock the shit out of it and just take it from, from veg to flower. And I, I'm curious your thoughts on that. You know, I, I started in control environment ag growing mushrooms. And when we wanted to switch from a, repro uh, from a vegetative to a reproductive stage, we would shock the the mycelia we would shock that block or that column of mushroom mycelia by either i mean crazy we would throw it in the freezer and have a low temperature uh stress we would literally like drop the blocks and like throw them on the ground and like yeah. have like a structural sort of a shock <laughs> and it did seem to produce more fruiting bodies you know, I don't know, like the stress, like was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. So I better like fruit. So, you know, when I think about growers going from acclimating to just, you know, throwing them in the deep end, I'm like, well, maybe there is something to that. Do, do you think there is at maybe that stage of growth? So I, I do think there is, um, there is validation for that, but in my opinion, later on throughout the crop production cycle, right? So during flowering, I would definitely support yeah. Uh, some stress techniques on the plant. But early on, I think, you know, when we talk about how we treat the plants, it has to, it has to be in parallel to our crop schedule and our cycle time. 
and how we rotate our square footage annually, mm. right? And so if a grower says, okay, well, I'm, I'm wasting a week by having to acclimate. Well, if you're on a weekly perpetual schedule, then maybe you're not, right? Oh, yeah. So like, I, I don't, you know, our crop schedule here is about um, 15 weeks. It's a pretty long cycle, um, but we have a perpetual system. So I plant 13,000 plants every week and I harvest 13,000 plants every week. And we turn our square footage within three days, right? And so even though I have that long of a cycle time, I'm still being as efficient as I possibly can with my square footage while also allowing the plants to grow and mature as I feel they should, they should have the opportunity to do, to be as productive as possible. And so, yeah, I think, I think some growers also try to like uh, speed, up, speed up acclimation, right? Uh -huh. So in propagation, I mentioned, you know, we may have lower light levels, which we do. And then in, in veg, we pull the shade, right? As soon as we pull them out of propagation and allow them to acclimate, some growers do push them, right? They have a slow increase of light intensity, right? In combination with changing their VPD in line with their lighting. And they slowly or, well, not slowly, but they try to push acclimation at a faster rate than it would otherwise occur naturally just by moving from one area to the next. And I think for, for certain systems that favors their production, whereas like in mine, I, I can build that time into our cycle as long as I have that weekly perpetual system in place. So is that is that 15 week cycle based off of square footage or is there something that you're doing some advantage that you've seen by having that schedule? Within our schedule, I have roughly uh, eight. Well, within the cycle, we have nine weeks of flowering what we okay. consider to be in the flowering stage and then three weeks of vegetative growth and then two to three weeks within propagation and, and acclimation. OK. Um, and so that. That to me is what I feel is the proper, the proper cycle time for the size pot I'm growing in, as well as the crop density per my square feet, as well as I've been able to break up our flowering square footage into nine sections. And with the quantity, with the plant density and the turns I need to make weekly, I can fit three cycles in our nursery to be in there for three weeks and then slowly cycle it out. And so it is based on square footage, the cycle certainly is, but then at the same time, crop density, so plants per square foot, and then what I feel is appropriate for their growth in the pots and sizes of things we're dealing with. If you were growing an ornamental plant, would you be doing the same level of scheduling planning? Oh, yes. Okay. I, th I think some ornamental plants would make it even more challenging. <laughs> Well, because you think, I mean, roses in February, um, bedding right. plants, you know, in March. I mean, you're trying to hit these certain markets and grow these plants during unideal times. I do imagine that that could be very challenging. Well, and it's, you know, you think about the differences between like growing bulbs versus hydrangeas, uh, primula, and poinsettias. I can have all of these in the greenhouse at the same time. They all need different light and day length requirements and they all need different temperatures. And they're being grown in bays side by side because that's what you have to do in floriculture. How and do you so do it? It's <laughs> talk about it, a true, for, for those large greenhouses and their head growers who forecast these crops, I don't think people realize how much of an incredible 
feat that actually is to do. Like those are some advanced growers who can properly schedule those crops and time them side by side while also managing all of the environmental needs. So when we're dealing with the monoculture, that is not the hardest thing to grow. You know, they're pretty tolerant. You know, cannabis is they're a pretty tolerant plant. <laughs> yeah, it is a weed, you know, if, you, if you're growing it right, it is. And uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I've certainly been able to learn some, some tricks from ornamentals to help me think about square footage and, and things like that to make this work. But, wow. Yeah, you know, you just think about, like we were saying, these markets and the timing of these specific markets when people want certain flowers and plants um, and cannabis is just kind of year round. I mean, maybe there's something you do special for 420 or I, I don't know, but maybe that's the, the one holiday that everyone is kind of gearing up towards. But in the end, it's, it's the same plant. It's not multiple different species of plants that have different day length period or photo period uh, requirements or environmental condition requirements and trying to grow them during an inopportune time to grow them. I mean, it's, yeah. Shout out to all the ornamental growers out yeah, there. Yeah, really. I know. And they, you know, the margins in that industry and they're selling selling plants that were grown for 13 months for $9 at retail. Like it blows my mind. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, wow. but no, I think, yeah, with cannabis, it's the challenge is consistency, cycle to cycle and throughout the year. Yeah. That's, that's the challenge with, with the monoculture, especially like cannabis. So what is the, what are some of the biggest challenges of growing in a greenhouse? You know, I'll, I'll share some things about our system and how we've, we've dealt with challenges based on it. We have about 205,000 square feet of, of just flowering uh, plantable square footage. And, you know, we have carbon-based soilless substrate that we grow in. We don't use rock world, nor will our county allow us, right? So we, really? we yeah, which I, th- which I think is great in all honesty, but, uh, but yeah, we have, uh, so we have that kind of substrate, which we have to deal with, right? And it's pretty cost-effective to use that type of substrate at our scale, as, as would other nursery and other greenhouse producers. Um, but with that substrate comes challenges, right? Especially depending on the expertise level of your growing team. So proper management and deployment of, you know, EC and pH into the pot and then understanding how to manage it within the pot um, and the the buffering uh, impact uh, over time. And then outside of that, you know, challenges within a greenhouse is, especially with cannabis, which we have no fungicides, no pesticides, nothing systemic that we can use, right? And so we're, we're heavily relying on all of these biological products and soaps and oils. And, and there's a lot of intricacies around using these so that you don't have negative implications after using them, but then at the same time, they're best used or most effective when being used preventatively. And so one of the challenges in a greenhouse, I think for many greenhouse growers for cannabis is later in flower, the impact of um, the environment on uh, botrytis susceptibility and all the flower. That's something that we in Salinas deal with because we have, you know, every day we have a, a haze come in uh, throughout the valley. And, and uh, it's interesting, I was here for seven months and it didn't rain once. And then I had probably two months every day it rained. Um, and so I'm like, okay, well, now I know how disease what everyone was talking production. about why all the strawberries yeah. come from Salinas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think, yeah, I think there's always challenges to, to managing the environment exactly how you want it to be during all of these changes seasonally and just throughout the day. So 
yeah, I, you know, yeah. I think there's, there's other challenges too, but. How do you know if a plant is happy or stressed? <laughs> happy. I remember in college when I used that term, Dr. Jim Faust would be, you know, make it clear to us that that is not a scientific term, right? Why not? And, and now I understand where it's coming from, but, uh, but no, I, you know, I do think. Well, what would you use instead? Just not no, stress? No I, no, I agree with you. Like, I, oh, I okay. think, um, you know, I think after you, you, you grow for a while, you can understand what that means, you know, in, in a way. But I do think that plants do, do communicate, you know, in, in at least the ways in which we manage them and how that, how they respond kind of communicates to us. But uh, to me, you know, there's, you got to be careful nowadays, especially with being indoors, right? Where you have different light qualities, you have different things in the environment that can skew what you perceive is going on in the first place, what you see, right? Give an example. So like, um, let's say in a completely controlled indoor environment, they're only using blue and red LEDs and not, you know, full spectrum LEDs. You now have a plant that's not green visually to you has a different coloring to it. So therefore you might not be able to see chlorosis or you might not be able to see, I don't know, spider mite damage on the leaf like you would if you were under you know, sunlight or, or oh, a different spectra. And so I think for one, we have to be careful on our reliance on what we see versus the data that we collect, you know, whether it be in the environment or in the soil. But, uh, but there are certain characteristics that I think we could, we could be pretty aligned on where a plant you know, has a certain color of green to it, right? Um, the structure and the habit of the plant looks healthy, it's robust, you know, it's, uh, it's branching, it's leafing at a certain rate, um, as well as I know here um, in the mornings when, uh, when the black cloth is, you know, closed, lights turn on and you see a lot of leaves kind of, you know, pushing towards the sunlight in a way, it makes you think that the plants are happy and that yeah. they are growing. Sun salutations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think one of the growers said one day, oh, they're finally praying to us to keep them alive or something like that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think there's other cues like probably mutation, you know, based on how you manipulate the environment mm. and, and like other kind of cues to how things are working aside from looking at the data. But, uh, but yeah, I think it takes a grower growing over time to understand what that means. Is the plant happy? Uh, and and what about stress? Like, what what cues do you look for uh, to see know if a plant is stressed? Yeah, so something that I've certainly learned with cannabis that was not near as apparent on other crops was uh, how much it does not like to be waterlogged. Ah. And you know, I, there's a lot to be said for you know understanding the intricacies of um, or the complexities of substrate in general. So, um, you know, porosity um, and the different materials you're using and how those, you know, can restrict nitrogen uptake and other things. But it's been, it's been interesting for me to watch how sensitive cannabis is to water. Hmm. And, um, and so there has been certain instances where let's say I've had to use a certain substrate because I couldn't get mine because the, you know, material supply chain is broken these days. And the plants would be sitting in water because I wouldn't be able to leach that substrate like I would my previous one and realizing, okay, well, these plants certainly are not growing. They're turning a darker color of green. The leaves are kind of turning under, right? The pH is staying low. And so I think that there's, there's certain cues that are almost opposite 
<laughs> of what you would consider yeah. being a happy Leaf point, going right? up, happy. Leaf going down is, yeah, it's smiling or it's frowning. Exactly. Yeah. And I, it's been interesting too, in some of our ranges, we have full spectrum supplemental lighting. So full spectrum LEDs. And then in other ranges, we have blue and red supplemental. Um, in your greenhouses. LEDs. In our greenhouses and different greenhouses. Not Very cool. sure how those decisions were made in the past, but, but it's been interesting to see plants going from, let's say a full spectrum greenhouse to a greenhouse with light quality of just blue and red and the plants going through a stage of acclimation due to those, those lights. And so those plants aren't just grown under one of those spectrums, they'll be grown under both. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay. So I, I do think light intensity in some cases uh, trumps light quality, especially in a greenhouse where you have sunlight also kind of diluting that, but. In a greenhouse, you think light intensity is more important than spectrum? Well, if we talk about energy efficiency and some other things like that, not so, not so much. There, there are certain exactly. things about certain spectra that are certainly more efficient and cost-effective. Right. Um, but yeah, I do think that overall light intensity over time is more impactful possibly than your supplemental spectra versus the sunlight that you're already getting otherwise. Okay. As supplemental light, like if it was a cloudy, if you had rain for two months, right, then you're trying to still have a high light intensity. I guess I was thinking, I was surprised because I was thinking more in terms of like inner canopy lighting, mm -hmm. that in that case, maybe having certain spectrums down low in the canopy, right, to make up for what's not filtering through, yeah, that that spectrum would, would trump. Agree. Yeah, yeah, I would completely agree with you. Light quality is incredibly important there. Okay. Or, or you otherwise are blocking light. So, okay. So you're surprised how sensitive cannabis is to water logging. So from based on your experience with other plants, other ornamental plants, they're not as sensitive to, to water logging or to more water than they need. I, I think they are. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, we we're also here in Monterey really restricted on what we can use to increase porosity. So I, I can't use rice holes. I can't use perlite. We can't use substrates like rock wool. They're very restrictive. And Why so not I did. Holes? Do they not break down? If for some reason they have an issue on them composting and their accumulation of arsenic or other things, which we've tested it and they they we have organic sources that don't have arsenic at all. But. Yeah, just another one of those things like, you know, why do we care about smelling cannabis outdoors? But hmm. yeah, it, I think I think cannabis is more sensitive, probably quicker than other other species. Other species can tolerate it for a short time and hopefully they can dry out by then. Uh -huh. Cannabis seems to just we are too wet. <laughs> um, and it, it just they the plant needs needs oxygen in the roots, root zone needs to have porosity, need, light, likes it on the drier side. And then with that understood, then you can start thinking about properly managing EC and pH yeah. in, a, in conjunction with that. One of our other podcast episodes talking to Tyler Barris, uh, he talked a lot about water for vegetable crops and that one of the biggest mistakes people make is overwatering plants, giving yeah. them too much love, basically. Like let yes. them dry out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I believe that. And I, when I first started my horticultural career, um, it was made clear to me that there are different types of growers. There is wet growers and there are dry growers. Huh. 
and uh, and that that was that seemed to be ever present within ornamentals. Um, and there certainly are crops that you know um, you need you need to understand water differently than with others. But no, yeah, I I agree, and I think with vegetables it's incredibly important because if you're not careful, then you you can encourage splitting of the fruit and and other things you know that'll just ruin your product quality in general. Yeah. And then also being in California, let's conserve as much water as we possibly can too. So that you know, exactly. that's, that's a huge part of it also. And it's been interesting to, to play with this plant. So. Yeah. You know, there's been research on other crops like tomatoes that have shown that if you start them uh, young, like in the nursery, by depriving them of water and being a dry grower, I guess, that they will grow up to be uh, a drought tolerant plant and and still get high productivity. And I don't feel like that's talked about very often in horticulture is, you know, we were talking about acclimation, but what about sort of education of the plant, right? Or training of the plant? Um, If we can start them under one condition and maintain that throughout, could we have water savings or energy savings or nutrient savings or whatever savings? Um, Because, we train them young to not need a lot. Yeah, no, and I, you're right. It, it's not, for some reason, it's still, is, it's still a struggle to translate what's already been proven on other crops into cannabis. I don't know if it's the cannabis industry's, you know, receptiveness of the information or of it, you know, it's all highly validated information, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, and I, I agree, like, gosh, the plants are just fascinating, right? You can, you can acclimate it to be more drought resistant within one cycle like we're not talking about over over a generation right? of breeding yeah we're not even yeah. breeding the plants to be <laughs> drought tolerant we're just training one plant to be drought tolerant yeah 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 it's fascinating but no i I've, i agree with the struggle there that there's there's so much that's already proven um that's in an effort to reduce cost while at the same time increasing yield and quality that for some reason still has not even been adopted nor talked about yet Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a good segue to another series of questions that I have about research and data and efficiency. I mean, you come from a place of, of, of education and, you know, the companies that you've, you've worked with um, have all sort of pushed the envelope and, and done internal R&D. They've, they've posted and published research, uh, and I'm sure you're doing in-house experiments at Harborside. I mean, how important is research to the success of this industry, whether it's cannabis or, or controlled environment ag? Yeah, no, I think we live in an ever-changing world. And because of that, we, we constantly are having to make changes or rather improvement to reduce our overall impact, right? To this, this ever-changing world, which seems to be going in a negative direction, at least as it stands right now. And I think as far as research is concerned, you know, there's, I would hope people have an appreciation for what they could learn and therefore what they could change based on the result of research, just to be better humans. But then at, at the same time, I, there's so much more to cannabis of which we're not even taking advantage of. Funny enough, it, it's quite, you know, ubiquitous here in California, the potency cells, right? And, you know, there's so much more to this plant than just potency. And, you know, when I was in hemp before getting into, to, you know, um, THC cannabis here in California, that market kind of matured at a rate 
a little bit faster than the, than the THC market just because of it, it going you know national and legal and every farmer kind of jumping in and getting involved and the amount of biomass that hit the market influenced the market to be more creative and innovative with the reduction in value. And so you had you know the whole hemp market all of a sudden break away from THC or uh, CBD, I guess, um, and focus on other minor cannabinoids like CBT, CBDB. And then you started to maybe have a focus on terpenes and terpene extraction and 100% derived cannabis terpenes in that market. And then you start to have all of these different customers and retailers start to change the value proposition of the plant, right? To therefore now bring new value to the customer to try and secure more sales to stay in business. And so I think research would enable us to build an even more robust but yet validated value proposition for the customer of which they are eagerly waiting for. Like the cannabis consumer is very interested to what this plant has to offer. But right now we're only we're only marketing THC. I mean, as and I'm speaking as an industry for the Yeah, most. no, I mean imagine if you were only marketing wine based on, you know, the alcohol content. That's yes, ludicrous. Great example. Great example. Yeah. <laughs> And, and so I, you know, I think research, whether it be from a greenhouse and cost and efficiency standpoint and allowing people to, to grow with the industry and you know, allow for a, a, a reduction in value of the product, right? And therefore more at scale production being made to compensate. I think there's a lot of research that supports helping us do that as, as we mature as an industry. But then I also think research would allow growers to be able to possibly offer new values to the customer on these other attributes that we have really yet to put any focus on, yeah. aside from yield and potency. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, as a light consumer myself, I don't really want something that's high potency. And yeah. and I and I do like that entourage effect of CBD. I like, you know, it kind of cuts the anxiety, you know, but yeah, you, you see more people going for the, the high THC content. And I'm like looking for something that's sort of middle, you know, low. I don't, I don't need something that that's, that is that powerful. And I also really like it when it tastes good, you know, yeah. I mean, and there's something about that as well. Um, you know, there's uh, one that I have been enjoying recently that is called lemon bean, but it tastes to me like sour apple and I fucking love it. <laughs> like, I don't know where the lemon came from, but, you know, to me, it tastes like this, but, you know, yeah. like thinking about like wines and, and food and, and other things that we consume, berries, right? I mean, acidity and sugar and, you know, tannins and just all these other complexities that you get from any plant, even just thinking about flowers, right? Like right. I know that a variegated flower has a virus, but it's so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know? yeah. like, yeah. Well, and I, you know, I, I don't think cannabis customers know what they want. Right, because we they haven't taught them. They don't even no. know what's out there. They don't know. Well, and they don't yet have all of the information about this plant to make a decision on what they want. And then there's other false information out there, like the different species, right, of cannabis, and how that has caused consumers to associate a certain response from using cannabis based mm -hmm. on species. When wait a minute, isn't this the entourage effect with minor cannabinoids and terpenes? and yeah. other things where we could kind of redefine the narrative there and therefore bring some validated confidence in making those decisions and claims associated with active and sleep and whatever else. Right. So, but none of this happens or none of this happens um, with a path to success without research. 
like it truly doesn't. And for, you know, in my mind, for those who, who don't, don't think that, you know, universities necessarily should get involved or, or collaboration should occur, it's not going to happen without it. Yeah. It's just not. We need that combined brain power, period, in order to, to move some of this forward. The, the uh, mental um, entourage effect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the brain trust effect. Yeah. Yeah. Two is better than one. Yeah, right. What, what does the word efficiency mean to you? Oh, goodness. The first thing because I think I, know, of, I mean, as a grower, I feel like you could go in so many directions. So, yeah. Well, I, I kind of go back to my original understanding of what that term originally meant kind of in school. And it brought me back to kind of, you know, chemistry, mm -hmm. physics, and thermodynamics of, you know, energy in equals energy out. And that process in between is true efficiency. And so kind of with that mindset in the background, it's composed of so much in whatever process we're talking about, whether it be within growing, within processing. But if we're talking kind of from just a high level production standpoint, you know, it, it brings in all cost centers related to production, yep. as well as all usage of all consumables. And then, you know, the practice is tied to all of these. And that's how we can start to define our efficiency. And then there's other, there's other methodology that are associated with like Lean Six Sigma thinking that kind of help you gauge and track and record your efficiency over time and make adjustments based on variability and waste and certain things in the system that you otherwise wouldn't notice if you weren't kind of taking on some of those you know, strategies. So what variables are you measuring and monitoring um, to, to track efficiency? Is it sure, just so what, what goes out? I mean, are you, I, I mean, you must be tracking what's going in and, mm -hmm. and then what you're producing, right? Yeah. So let's see if I can have an example. So like, if we think about just trimming, for example, okay. simple process of trimming, you know, let's say that you have bucked material, right? So you've harvested the plant, it's gone through drying, you've then bucked it, therefore graded it, whether it be a A, bud, B, C, whatever your category structure is. And then you have trimmers hand trimming the product. Within that simple process of hand trimming, right? What is your throughput per person per day? Is there variation of throughput per cultivar? How does moisture content impact throughput? And then what's the ratio of trim to flower that comes out of that versus the efficiency of those trimmers actually trimming the way our QC department thinks it should be trimmed or the customer thinks it should be trimmed, right? So even just that simple, that simple stage of production has such intricacies to how well it could be efficient or yeah, how we could improve efficiency. Wow. Um, if that kind of, answers your question i'm not sure if it does but so, uh, so how does moisture content affect trimming efficiency or throughput <laughs> so you know i this is this is without talking about the quality of the flower right if we sure. only look at, if we only look at efficiency of, of trimming the moisture content is a quantitative measure of the volume of water present in the in the tissue right so it's a it's a, it's in relation to the percent of biomass whether it be 10 to 12 percent moisture content um, and then that also influences weight and it influenced the amount of moisture present in that now handheld trimmed flower. And so I think that flower that is more moist has a higher moisture content is actually a little bit more sticky 
right? Because you do have water at different energy levels, you know, throughout that flower that can transfer onto your hands and things compared to if it were more dry. But then at the same time, you know, water activity has a play there as to how, you know, water migrates from the flower onto, let's say, the, the scissors or the, the hands of the trimmer. But I do think moisture content, it's interesting you mentioned that now, because, uh, you know, in California, the value of flour has significantly dropped over the past few months. And uh, I've seen, I've seen certain, certain growers, whether or not they know they're doing this, I'm not sure, but they've, you know, they're producing flour that in some cases has 15 to 17% moisture content. And right? it passes labs? It passes labs. But at the same time, the concern comes on water activity because that dictates whether or not you're actually going to have mold, right? And so as long as they as long as they abide by the water activity thresholds, then that product can be sold and it can be compliant. And so therefore growers are selling now water instead of just biomass. And I'm like, hmm, well, that's interesting. <laughs> but at the same time, moisture content uh, during post-harvest also defines the cultivation performance if we're tracking finished yield, especially if moisture has weight to it. Mm-hmm. Because the higher the moisture content, the more weight I'm going to have. Yep. The lower the moisture content, the less weight I'm going to have. And so therefore, you're also dictating the cultivation performance based on that process, which should be part of the whole efficiency conversation also. I mean, that is really interesting because when I think about hydroponic lettuce, there is some debate, right, about are they selling water? Right? Or are they selling substance, right? The wet weight versus the dry weight. And if you were to dry it down, it's like, well, there's actually less, less lettuce here because <laughs> we grew it hydroponically or because we gave it a big burst of water. Same with like maybe hydroponically grown tomatoes or something right at the end to boost its weight and maybe make a little bit more money off of that. And then if I take that a little bit further, you know, growing lettuce. I love that you're in Salinas or Monterey County because everything comes out of there. <laughs> it does. <laughs> right? Like you grow uh, some some romaine lettuce in Salinas and send it to New York and it can lose up to 20% of its, of its weight, which is 20% of its value by the time it, it gets there. And so you think about the supply chain and who that is going to affect the most. And it's going to be the, the farmer usually. And so I, I like thinking, you know, I, I guess I always thought that cannabis, it has to be between 11 and 13%. But if some people can pass labs and get away with a higher moisture content, right? Like, yeah, yeah, if our standard's 12 and they're producing 17%, then okay, your price should be reduced by 5%, yeah. <laughs> you know, but no, it is fascinating. And at the same time with lettuce, it's such a great example of a, a crop that's full of water. Then we have the conversation on smokability and customer mm-hmm. satisfaction, which I, I don't, you know, there's, there's not too much research out there now. And that's why I think 12% would be kind of the sweet spot for moisture content as far as customer satisfaction for burning. But then that comes into play too on how we need to make that decision on moisture. Interesting. Which is something else to learn. I think Health Canada actually has a requirement of 11% moisture content. If my memory is right, 
like they actually say this is what the moisture content has to be, which is super interesting. I wonder if they tied it to an appreciation on the impact of weight and value. Maybe. If that was, if that was part of determining. Wonder. So, you know, if, if we talked, so just staying on efficiency for a moment, is it easier to reduce your inputs or increase your outputs? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly easy. It's certainly easier to increase my input, um, but I, I think I think no. I, I Good answer. So can, can we can we reduce inputs while increasing outputs? And I I do think that you can. Okay. Um, and I I think especially with cannabis, there's there's uh, been multiple individuals and companies that have proven that on fertilizer. <laughs> Based on how many cannabis growers do you know? Uh, That's good. Get pre-mixed fertilizer, you know, and all these oh, other things. Yes. Oh, yes. But, but I think you know, you have to you have to have a system that, to an extent, allows you a decent bit of consistency and automation in order for that to happen. And you know, if we want to if we want to increase outputs, then I need precision on dosing, you know, or irrigation irrigation specifically per plant. I need to make sure that when I do change the different, you know, dials within the growing environment, that it happens within a certain time span, and that mm -hmm. I, I get I get the environment to be where I want it when I want it, and all of these things, you know, help you become more efficient, reduce that input cost while it, with a goal of increasing output. So yes, I do think it certainly is possible, and cannabis can do a much better job at doing that compared to how the industry has in the past versus petunia producers who are show it up in, in two seconds. So, <laughs> In terms of energy, I mean, you're growing in a greenhouse, so I have to assume you're using less energy. I mean, you're not, you're not air conditioning your greenhouses, right? You're using pretty conventional pad and fan cooling and ventilation, yeah. right? Method. And uh, are you, do you, and you are doing some supplemental light uh, in the winter. Yep. For a greenhouse, are are there energy efficiencies that could be built in that, you know, if, if you could invest in anything to reduce the energy uh, use input, is there something you would you would do? Yeah, so I so for one, I will say Harborside has invested in doing about 11 acres of solar. So that'll take us off the grid. That's is, awesome. It, it is. And I, it's the first time I'll admit that I've kind of dealt with solar and it's it's amazing. The trade-off there, but as far as in in production, I think there are certain technologies right now that would reduce overall energy use, uh, like uh, monitoring of DLI versus just thresholds of light intensity on supplemental lighting. Okay. You know, I think there's, you know, you with that you could achieve more light accumulation while being more efficient with how you apply the light. Sure. And so there's there's something there which if you know like our houses we have five acres worth of greenhouses that are all outfitted with supplemental lighting that would be that would be quite impactful and so yeah i think there's you know whether it be monitoring in the soil environment with ec and ph on how you manage your you know your inputs versus just you know readings on a once a week basis manually i think all of that you know allows you to fine tune and reduce energy hmm. but do you guys heat with with electric or with uh, natural gas or propane? Yeah, we have natural gas. Okay, okay. We, and we do, uh, we have we have burners that are only used secondary to primary floor heating. 
that we do use for heating to be more efficient. Oh, you do floor it's heating. That's awesome. So you have a boiler then um, that's delivering hot water? Yes. Nice. Nice. So with those boilers um, and a benefit to having boilers, if you do have a system where you, you know, use those for radiant heat in some, some way, you can also capture CO2 as a byproduct of those. And so we, we do capture that. Uh, you in do? Our, in our nice. Are you, uh, do you actually run the boilers during daylight or are they mostly operating at night? It kicks on and off based on the settings that we have. Okay. Um, in place so it could be it could be either or or both at sometimes but uh, we also have kind of a recirculation system within okay okay we kind of be more efficient with heating and cooling of the water and it being recirculated so with 11 acres of solar do you guys will you guys switch to electric boilers uh, <laughs> i haven't i haven't gotten that far <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> or heat pumps or something. So tell me how you kind of brought this up earlier about supply chain. And, and I'm really curious uh, how COVID and coming out of COVID or not coming out of COVID, I don't know what where we are right now, but how has how has COVID in general over the last couple of years, can you believe we're in year two? Um that affected uh, you and, and the operations at Harborside and, and maybe even just controlled environment ag and cannabis in general at large? Yeah, no, um, very much appreciate the question. And like you, I can't believe it's been two years and I can't, can't believe how it doesn't seem like we're even close to being out of this yet. And then being able to experience the ramifications of it throughout the entire supply chain globally has been something to experience. I, I'd say my biggest takeaway, at least from a production standpoint, that, that COVID's made me aware of is the true value and importance of a at-scale production system having automation. You know, before a pandemic, when you think about a grower who's making a decision on being manual in their greenhouse system or going from being manual to being more of an automated grower, as part of the you know, um, automated value proposition, nowhere in there did they say, oh, and uh, we also bring value to you when 12 of your growers are all of a sudden out for 14 days due to COVID, when your system's built on and, and you know, brain monitoring through everything, lighting, venting, black cloth, irrigating, you name it. And it, it's truly giving me, given me a new value to associate with automation that I otherwise would not have considered as impactful before. I, you know, I never would have sat back and said, oh, well, half of my workforce could be gone tomorrow when trying to, to consider the value of automation versus manual in production. Whereas now, well, if we have another pandemic, that's possible. And I, I need as much as I can being controlled on my computer so that production doesn't go through the cracks, you know, and, and our production is ruined. Is really, it's really been something. Because I mean, these, these spikes and valleys are just kind of constant, right? And you're seeing it all throughout the country. And all of a sudden, a greenhouse that has everything manually hand-watered, for example, no longer has those irrigators present. They're gone for 14 days. And then if you were to replace them, that expertise is not there. No. And so it's a it's a huge risk to not have automation if you understand the impact a pandemic can have on production. It's interesting because I feel like automation up until maybe COVID and this pandemic has been a lot about labor efficiencies, 
right? And reducing your cost of, of labor by having automation. Also maybe precision of control because you have machines and sensors that are not humans that are have human error associated with them. Yeah. And so do you think, and, and maybe there's been pushback or maybe not seeing necessarily the value add by, you know, losing jobs or having to transition jobs. Do you think that more growers are going to be sort of nudged into automating their processes and operations because of this pandemic? And how do you think that's going to impact the workforce? Yeah, no, I, I certainly do think that growers will now be more inclined and certainly more incentivized to be prepared for the impact of a pandemic, you know, of which automation can alleviate that risk to an extent. And the way that that'll impact is our labor force is just a reduction in jobs, in all honesty, that that would be the impact of automation. And then for those jobs that you do have to manage the automation, um, it certainly would be an increased skill set or an increased you know, experience level and therefore a different kind of, I don't know, quality of, of worker for those jobs. Not sure if that's yeah. the right right way to say it, but, but you know, and I, it's hard, right? Because in some cases costs are, especially with cannabis, you can, you can have reasonable costs with, with manual controls, right? While offering jobs and, and, you know, doing what you can for, for the people in these communities regarding, you know, being a business that, that is able to support them. But then at the same time, overall risk and then just securing the, the survival of the business, automation now has a whole new value to it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, as as someone who maybe wasn't sold completely on automating every process ahead of this, I mean, why was that? What, what was your skepticism or, or your reluctance to automate certain things? I do think certain systems or certain uh, systems, meaning different greenhouses or uh, teams, they may not know enough about the crop to automate it yet. You I know? want you to expand on that. <laughs> I love that statement right there. I, there's, a lot, there's a lot of learning that comes along with hand watering, right? Simple example. And for a grower to mature in their career and to gain experience, they, they, have to, they have to be in full control of growing that plant. And some could argue with me, but I do feel that there are certain systems that don't quite know enough about what the plant should have, when, at what volumes, at what concentrations. And so therefore automation is almost intimidating. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, and to answer your question on, on why we possibly don't have more automation, I think as a business over time, we've, we've made the, the best decisions at the right time and we're slowly moving more towards automation. Um, we just are where we are today, you know, based on how we've made decisions throughout the market so far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I'll say that I'm sort of in the skeptics corner um, as much as I love data and as educated as I am, because, it, you know, yes, data is king, but what do you do with data? Data is not information, <laughs> right? And not, and not everybody's an analyst. No, yeah. not everyone's yeah. an analyst. And, and, 
you know, I, yes, we can put monitoring. So, you know, if I just think about environmental controls, yes, we can put environmental sensors, you know, in a room and we can give them a fancy schmancy, you know, user interface to look at trend data and look at what the conditions are right now or last week or whatever. But most people have no idea what they're looking at. They have no idea why something went up or down or is flat. And they might think flat is good and flat might mean flatlined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. really. Right. And, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it, it's the same when people say, oh, you know, we want a central plant and chillers. And I'm like, no, you don't. You're a grower that has like 10,000 square feet. You want to now be an engineer and like manage like this chiller mm -hmm. system. That is a nightmare for you. Like, let's keep it simple. Right. Yeah. And, and so I, I appreciate you saying, you know, that you can learn a lot just by hand watering the plant and, and working with that, that plant from beginning to end to really understand it. Because are we really going to rely on machine vision to decide if our plant is smiling or frowning? Well, right, it, right shade of green? Couldn't, couldn't agree more. And at the same time, like, where the sensors are placed in a greenhouse has a huge yeah. impact on the data that you're looking at and whether or not it's representative of that whole that whole section. And you know those little intricacies, the grower won't know till it's too late. Yeah, you know, of which if you were in there every day dealing with those plants, changing manually the temperature, you would feel that towards this side it's cooler than this side where it's warmer. Oh, and that's why we're covered in mold over here. Right. You know that. That comes with experience. And so I, I do think that there's a lot of growers who just, they're intimidated by it and they're not analysts of data, nor do they have a background in plant physiology to kind of understand the intricacies of, of managing the environment through automation. Right. But at the same time, I do think there are some custom, um, vendors out there who, who offer decent technology to, to give the grower somewhat of a recipe. But Absolutely. Still, and and I'm definitely so not anti-data or anti-controls and automation. Um, you know, we live and die on that uh, in yeah. HVAC. But I just, I don't want to lose the touch. You know, I mean, the farming, right? We're farming yeah. after all. And this is our, you know, our, our greatest occupation, right? I mean, and we've been doing it for 10 or 50,000 years. I don't know, depending on which resource you look at. And there's just something about it that is the human experience that I yeah. don't want to remove, you know, yeah. and I know there's less humans who are farming, but the ones that are, let's, let's give them the credit for being the masters of nature that they are. No, I, and I, I love it. I'm with you. It's at the same time, if I sat here in front of a computer and tweaked our entire system. I certainly would also not learn as much as I do from actually being in the greenhouse, of which I love doing. You know, we learn every single day, right? And that comes with, you know, you being with the crop, not exactly. on a computer. Exactly. So do you consider controlled environment agriculture and maybe you can be specific to cannabis uh, if you want, but do you consider it a competitive or collaborative industry and community? I think outside of cannabis, it is incredibly collaborative. I think within cannabis, we're slowly getting there. We're slowly getting there. I, you know, what there's, would it take to get there? Well, I think there's a lot at play. You know, there's, there's all of these startups, right, which have different motives, 
you know, for, for why they're in business in some cases. Mm. And it causes them to hide behind confidentiality when sharing data to, to hopefully keep themselves safe. But I, I think that's part of it. I also think that, you know, there's a lot of legacy um, cultivators out there that may have some interesting practices up their sleeve that are not yet scientifically validated for the reasons they may think they are, but they think that's kind of the secret sauce, right? Which in my opinion, there's no secret sauce. You know, we need to, we need to learn what that is. And the only way we do that is through research and collaboration. So I, I, it's interesting when I first started working at Fluence, you know, I don't know, four years ago, five years ago, the industry was incredibly closed left. Like you, mm. you couldn't go anywhere without signing an NDA. You couldn't even walk into a greenhouse. Like, come on. I know. <laughs> you know Somebody wouldn't on. let me take a picture one time of their fabric duct. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me right now? <laughs> oh my gosh. And I will say it has changed from there. Like I, there are growers now who come together and talk about, you know, different practices, different things. They're sharing of, you know, fertilizer recipes. There's tours being done freely now. Pictures, you know, can be taken. People aren't as you know, closed lip as if you were growing an alien species. I mean, this is just another, another plant, you know, another short day plant, to be honest. Yeah. And there's so many things that we, we could learn from each other and just really increase the pace of development of this industry if we did it. Why do you think it's opening up? Do you think people are realizing that value of working together? I think that they have hit a wall in, I think uh, the industry based on Let's say in California, the value of flour has dropped, right? And it's causing the businesses who are here and who are still alive to be better, produce higher volumes, produce better quality at the now new value. And because of that, certain growers have hit a wall. They can't get past it. And the only way to get past it is learning and learning from others who have different ideas. A lot of growers stay within their facilities and they have, you know, those horse blinders that you would, you know, horses have on the sides of their head. Yeah. They don't see past their own production, whereas if you were to just two or four other facilities, you might fix the issue you're having with pH control. You may fix the issue that you have, you know, with something else. And so I, I think the, the industry as it matures is causing growers to collaborate in order to continue to participate yeah. in the industry. And I think also it's going to help with the legitimization and validation of this industry is that the more that we talk to each other, you know, the yeah. more we're talking, other people are learning about what we're doing and it becomes less scary. It becomes less fringe and more accepted. And I think, you know, a lot of that closed lipness also was maybe out of those legacy growers that were growing in a very different environment, you know, legally and politically and, um, you know, were trained or conditioned to not write anything down and not record anything and, and, and stay very close to their local community and, and not share because they didn't want to get in trouble, you know, to say it simply. And so I, my hope is, yeah, by talking more to each other that we legitimize this industry more and everyone is more successful. Yeah. No, I don't think you could have said it any better. Yep. Agreed. So how do you predict the industry is going to evolve over the next five or 10 years? Is there anything that you've seen that you're particularly excited about? I, you know, I'm, I'm excited about there now being consumer interest on other things than THC. Yeah. 
that gives that gives us the op opportunity to now you know, work with different genetics. It gives us the opportunity to redefine what we consider to be productive in the greenhouse. And I think in the next five years, you know, we're going to not knowing, you know, legality nationwide, how that's going to pan out without speaking to that. I'll say that I think the, the market is going to, to become more focused on data and more focused on conveying the proper information to the customer and therefore now acquiring new customers mm -hmm. because of the, the new value outside of just getting high you know, yeah. with this plant. And that's, that's with me talking about from the, you know, the California market, you know, producing flour mainly. I, I'm, I'm very excited to see how we expand on this, this plant and start to really understand the entourage effect and, and understand like something that we've been dealing with internally is, you know, when you think about terpenes per pound, you have a percentage like you do with moisture content or potency. And uh, the question that, that we had posed is, do total terpenes smell stronger than individual terpenes? And, you know, that, that simple comment, I haven't yet got an answer, but we did a, a blind test here at the farm. And I had one that was testing around like, I don't know, 1.5 percent terpenes, and I had another one that was at four percent terpenes, and the 1.5 smelled stronger. And it's like, ah, so it must be one terpene that humans can detect possibly sure. you know, stronger than others. And I'm like, we're not even talking about this at retail. The customer's not even, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And so I, I just think in the next five years, you know, depending on how collaborative we are and where, where the research is focused, it'll be really interesting to see what's yeah. next. Yeah. All right. So last question. What do plants crave? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, you had to know this question was coming. <laughs> I, 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 I did. I didn't know it was coming. Um, I usually would like to think I'm prepared for things, but you know, I, I think plants crave an environment that is suitable for growing. And I, I, I say that and I see, I see your face here. And I know those who are listening do not, but um, I, I think the question that I would pose to you is, do we know truly what the suitable environment is? Oh. Right? Or is that something that we're continuously building and they constantly crave? I don't know. Okay. A non-answer. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a question to the question. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So. You, um, so how I end every single one of my podcasts is I ask three rapid fire questions. Uh huh. So okay. they're meant to be fun. Okay. Just real quick answers. Okay. You ready? Okay. I think. Okay. Number one, are plants introverts or extroverts? <laughs> introverts. Why introverts? Um, cause they are very selfish. They are? Yes. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that. See, this is where the rapid fire just like ruined my brain. I don't, I don't know how that, how that is, has anything to do with the introvert or extrovert. So let's go to the next question. That's awesome. I love it. Okay. Can cannabis create a more sustainable world? Oh, it certainly can. Yes. Why? How? I mean, if we just think of, think about, you know, how we could 
use it from a textiles perspective versus just oh, even sure. plastic. I yeah. mean, you know. Yeah, that, we didn't talk about hemp at all, but. No, yeah. no, but just, yeah, that, and then, yeah, what we're, the regulations around how we grow it are automatically more environmentally friendly than traditional ag. And so, yeah, completely. That's a friendly. plus. Okay. If you could crossbreed cannabis with any ornamental flower, hmm. what would it be? Oh, my. I have not thought about that. Hmm. You're going to go home and really think about this. But you have to answer it now. I have to answer it now. It's funny. There's certain ornamental plants that I love, and I'm thinking about crossing it with cannabis and what that would turn out into. And some of them I don't think would look very nice. <laughs> <laughs> would they smell nice? Well, the first thought I had was begonia, and I'm like, that wouldn't look, what the heck would that look like? <laughs> what would that look like? I don't know. And then a poinsettia, nah, poinsettias are almost uh, that's, no. boring. Gosh, Nadia. Maybe a zinnia. Okay. Yeah, Why? Because cannabis needs more color. Mmm. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Add a splash of color. Yeah. Here we go. Okay. Love it. Awesome. Well, Travis, this was very fun. Thank you so much for interviewing with me today. Uh, I'm really excited to get this out to the world. And I can't wait to see Cannabinia plant. Okay, yeah. Zinnabis, a Zinnabis yeah. plant? It's in the pipeline. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Looking forward to it. 10 years, <laughs> right? Of breeding, right? And then we'll get there to the Zinnabis plant. Yes, Perfect. we will. We will. No, I, I loved it, Nadia. I appreciate the opportunity and always love talking to you. So yeah, thank you. Thanks, Travis. All right. Have a great one. All right. You too. Thank you for joining Dr. Nadia Saba as she sat down with Travis Higginbotham of Harborside Incorporated. Join us next week. We'll be speaking to Michelle Hackett of Riverview Farms. I'm Dana Swadan, and this has been The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.